So tonight we bring to a conclusion um, this little three-day retreat on the Holy Spirit. And the first night we talked about the ministries of the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And then last night we talked about receiving the Holy Spirit. How do we prepare our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit with his gifts of power? And tonight we're going to talk about living in the power of the Holy Spirit. How does this translate into our daily lives? All right, when we get out of our prayer closet, we go about our daily business, how does living in the Holy Spirit, what does that mean in our lives? Let me go right back to the very beginning. We've talked about this every night, about the Holy Trinity about how the Holy Spirit is that love that binds the Father and the Son. He is that love that binds us to God, and he is that love that binds us to one another. You know, what everybody wants in life, whether they know it or not, is to experience the love of God. That's what everybody wants. You know that old country song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. If people are not living in the Holy Spirit, that's exactly where they are. They're searching for something that's going to bring them satisfaction, something that's going to give them a sense of being loved, something that gives them a sense of peace. And nothing is going to accomplish that except the Holy Spirit. That's it. Nothing else works. Now, and this is why. We know that God is a triune God, right? He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But mankind, made in the image of God, we also have a triune nature. Let me read this quote. This is from St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians. May the God of peace himself grant you the gift of perfect sanctity. And may you, spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit and soul and body. Now one of the basic teachings of St. Paul, you, you come across it throughout all of his writings, is that man has two natures. He has an animal nature, which he calls the flesh. An animal nature that desires to seek animal satisfaction in, um, in feeding of the stomach, in exercising control over others, in conquering for territory, in greed, and all these things, and lust, and all these things that are part of his animal nature. And we realize that all of us have an animal nature, but thanks be to God, we also have a spiritual nature. All of us have, every human has the light of God planted within him. We talked about that. And we can turn to the spirit of God, be adopted as his children, and have access to that spiritual life as adopted children of God. So we have the animal nature, and we have the spiritual nature. And guess what they do? They fight with each other all the time. We know this, don't we? We know this from our daily lives. Um, let's see, here's St. Here's Paul again. The desires of the flesh are opposed to the spirit. 
and those of the spirit are opposed to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you cannot do what you want. <laughs> I have a good priest friend, one of my mentors. He was, I lived for a couple of years with the Descalced Carmelite Fathers, and, and he was uh, the, the superior of that a particular house. And he used to say this. He said, the only freedom you will ever have in life is the freedom to choose your own frustrations. <laughs> and isn't he right? We, whatever direction we choose in life, there's always going to be that, what if I would have gone the other way? I, you know, and, and there's always going to be frustrations in any direction we take, whatever we do. And that's largely because the spirit and the flesh battle against each other. The animal nature wants to draw us into pride, into greed, into avarice, and into lust, into self-gratification. The spiritual nature desires us to pursue unity with God. Right? The animal nature wants to lock its claws into this world. And the spiritual nature wants to ascend into the next. And so they're at war. And the battleground of that war is our soul. Now the Greek word soul, psuche, what it means is that eternal part of man, which is his mind, his will, and his emotions. That's where that battle is constantly taking place. In our minds, forcing ourselves to, uh, the things we think about, in our will, trying to make decisions and choices, in our emotions, constantly being tugged this way or, or that way. Um, the mind, will, and emotions are the battleground between the flesh and the spirit. But the spiritual man ascends his spiritual nature above his flesh and his soul, who commands, which I think that's what uh, St. Paul talks about when he talks about a, a sound mind or the gift of self-control. He commands his spirit and his soul to obey the, the, the demands of the spirit, to ascend to God. And that's when we can experience that love and that joy and that peace that Christ offers and promises. One of the, a good example of this, and I mentioned him the other night, Saint Stephen, first Christian martyr, right? He gets hauled before the Sanhedrin. And he gets charged with preaching in the name of Jesus. And, he, you know, there are a couple of different ways he could have approached that particular issue. He could have been, you know, apologetic. Well, I'm sorry, you know, I won't do it again, you know. Or he could have been more firm, like Saint Peter says, you know, Say what you want, but I have to obey God and not man, right? But Stephen did not take either of those directions. He came out and just lambasted the, the Sanhedrin, which you realize the Sanhedrin is the supreme court of Israel. They, they make all the decisions. They have all the control. They have all the power. And so he, he, um, he just lambasts them and says, you, you, you killed the prophets, you, 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 know, you, you destroyed faith, and, you, and you've taken the law and you've twisted it into something just to use for manipulation and personal gratification. He just, he just reams them out. 
And of course, he gets martyred. But he is doing this not because he's an angry man that just wants to, you know, spew out his venom and anger. He, it, he does this because he is consumed by the Holy Spirit. And he comes at them with a very prickly truth. Of course, you must realize these really are the men who put Jesus to death. And he comes at them with this, this dreadful prickly truth. And of, and of course they stone him. But this is, the, this is my favorite part of that story. As he's being stoned, he looks up and he sees heaven opened. And he sees God the Father sitting on his throne. And he sees Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. It's the only place in scripture that we see Jesus standing. He's always sitting at the Father's right hand. But it's almost like Jesus is giving Stephen a standing ovation. I mean, what a, what a joy to have Christ stand up to receive you because you have lived, you have put to death the flesh, you have put to death your mind, your will, your emotions, you have completely submitted to the Spirit and Jesus rises up to receive him. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. But that is the call, the, the, the goal for us as spiritual people to live in the spirit and to follow the spirit even when um, the mind, the will, the emotions, and certainly in our flesh wants to run in the opposite direction. One of the reasons that we need to do that is, is just not so that we can be holy people, but so that we can actually have some joy and satisfaction with life. You know, the animal nature can never satisfy. The animal nature can never satisfy. There is, you know, there is nothing, there's, you know, there's no gourmet meal or wonderful lifestyle of the rich and famous there is none of that that can satisfy. It can distract. And that's why people want to pursue the flesh so much, is that there's so much interior pain because they're not walking with God that they're trying to distract them from the pain. And so they pursue the desires of the flesh, thinking surely, surely at some point I'll have enough money or I'll, I'll have enough cars, or I'll have enough houses, or I'll have enough fame, or I'll have enough fortune. Surely, at some point, there will be something that satisfies. And I'm not saying that everybody who's rich and famous is, is evil. I'm not saying that. I mean, it's very possible to be very wealthy and still be committed to Christ, still be committed to, to Christ's cause. I mean, we see a few of these, we see them in, in Scripture, right? Job was a very wealthy man, committed to God. So was Solomon. Although he did get kind of messed up there, didn't he? But, you know, there, um, you can be very wealthy and still be following Christ, but you cannot let your wealth own you. You can own wealth, but you cannot let it own you. And even, you know, at, even at lower levels, it's very easy to be owned by our stuff, you know? 
And, um, you know, whatever it is that wants to consume us, whether it's uh, classic cars or it's all the hunt. I, know I have friends who like to love to hunt, and that's great. I um, had a friend just give me a hunting rifle. Maybe one of these days I'll be a real Coloradan and kill an elk. But anyway, um, you know, and all that stuff's fine, but you can just fill yourself with toys. And suddenly you've got all these toys that you have to take care of. You know, I, I used to love the, the Sammy Davis Jr. song, I've got plenty of nothing and nothing's got plenty, it's nothing's plenty for me. You know, because if you've got stuff, you've got a lot. You have, you have to, you're afraid somebody's going to take it away. Or you're going to go out and work and try to make more. The thing, the, the flesh, never, the animal nature, never, never satisfies. I'm going to read a little passage here from Romans chapter 8. I love that chapter, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Those who live according to the flesh fix their attention on the things of the flesh, while those who live according to the Spirit set their thoughts on spiritual things. The desires of the flesh result in death, but the desires of the Spirit result in life and peace. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you do not receive a spirit of slavery leading you to fear. Rather, you receive a spirit of adoption, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father. Remember, we talked about last night, Abba is, is Hebrew for daddy. It's, it's a personal, it's a very intimate, very intimate word, Abba. That we can have that intimate relationship with God. And all we really need to do is just accept God's love for us. Someone asked me the other day out in the um, um, in the narthex. They asked me, "What is the, the what is the the sin, um, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven?" And I, you know, said the Holy Spirit is the love of God, and the sin against the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven is the rejection of the love. Of God to reject God's love because if you reject God's love God can't penetrate because that's all he's got that's all he is you know there's nothing you can do in life to make God love you more there's nothing you can do in life to make God love you less because love is not something God does God love is who God is and if you reject the love of God then you're lost. C.S. Lewis has a great line. He says, the, the got locked to the gates of hell, or the gates of hell are locked from the inside. It's not that God wouldn't forgive them, but they have locked themselves away from God because of their refusal to accept his love. Why would someone do that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Two big, big reasons. One is fear, and there's an awful lot of fear of God in a bad sense, all right? I know there's a gift of fear of God, but people being afraid of God, the fear of God is not, the, it's not being afraid of God. The fear of God, the scripture talks about, means to take God seriously, to know his presence and to take his love, take his commands, take his presence seriously. That's what, it, that's what the scriptures means by the fear of God. 
But there are people who are afraid of God. And in fact, my, my Pentecostal grandmother, she used to wag her finger at me and she said, God is watching you. You know, it's like, whoa. You know, it's, it's, I'm afraid God's going to see me and, and zap me with a lightning bolt. I've known a lot of people that have been afraid of God zapping with a lightning bolt. Um, I only know one person who was struck by lightning. He actually was struck by lightning twice. Uh, but he was a very godly man. He was a Methodist preacher. He was a very good, godly man. Um, but he did, have a, um, he did have a knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But um, people are afraid, and they lock God out. Or, I've seen this a lot, people are ashamed, and they lock God out. They think that their sin is so great, that their life is so messed up, that God can't love them, and they lock God out. Out of shame. Out of shame. We've been working with someone in our parish for a while to try to get them to overcome their shame just so they can come back to God, come back to the church, you know, realize that God can forgive anything. And to believe that, that God loves them, God forgives them, God accepts them. And that's tremendous. In fact, some of you got my book, um, Lord Heal My Wounded Soul. And it has several um, prayer exercises for inner healing, healing of our, our, uh, our soul wounds. And the very first exercise is the ability to say, God loves me just the way I am. God forgives me just the way I am. God accepts me just the way I am. And here comes the hard part. Therefore, I love myself just the way I am. I forgive myself just the way I am. I accept myself just the way I am. I had a woman in my office some time back, and she had had an abortion. And um, she was, and the abortion had been years ago, you know, when she was a teenager. But, you know, even though she was much older than that now, she was just still torn up about it. She had never been able to forgive herself. And I go take her through this exercise, and she just breaks down weeping. It never occurred to her that it would be okay to love, forgive, and accept herself. But God loves, forgives, and accepts us. He, he washes through us. He cleanses us. But a lot of times we block that power of his forgiveness by not forgiving ourselves. So, we need to accept God's love for us, submit to God's love for us, allow ourselves to be forgiven, to be set free from guilt and shame, to be renewed in our minds, how we think, how we see the world, how we see others, how we treat others. St. Paul writes that there are three Eternal virtues. We call them theological virtues. Everybody knows what they are, right? Faith, hope, and love, right? Because we, 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 we recite that every time we say a rosary, right? For those, those little three beads that are by themselves. For an increase of faith, hope, and love. Or faith, hope, and charity, if you, if you like that for translation. And 
because we want to increase in these virtues. St. Paul says they're eternal. Um, Thomas Aquinas argued with St. Paul. I don't know why he would do that, but he did. He said hope is not eternal because once you get to heaven, there's nothing left to hope for. But he un misunderstands what hope is. Hope, because we think of hope as, well, I hope, I'm hoping for this or I'm hoping for that. I'm hoping for a new car, you know, hoping for, hoping for heat in the house, whatever. And, but that's not what hope is. At least not, not as Paul is describing it. Hope is the conviction and assurance that God is for you. God is on your side. God wants your life to be successful, to be happy, to be fulfilled. If you pursue the things of the world, you'll never be happy, successful, or fulfilled. You might have money in your account, right? but it's not, going to, it's not going to satisfy you. God wants us to have fulfilled lives. Jesus says, I've come to give life and give it in the, to the full, abundantly, running over, joyous, because God is for us. God is on our side. And that brings us to an entirely different relationship with God when we realize he's not watching us, you know, to see if we mess up. He is for us to pour out himself into us so that we can live in his joy. It is a great understanding. When you, come, when you can grasp that God is for me, that's a great great thing and then when we all come together in love and the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit brings unity I remember the early days of the charismatic movement I might have mentioned this I don't can't recall um, we'd get together Protestants Catholics all kinds of Protestants you know you know groups that would never speak to one another and would get together just to worship and to pray and there was such tremendous unity. Nobody was preaching. Nobody's trying to argue or convince. Because that's, we didn't care. What we were excited about is that we had had an experience with the Holy Spirit. And we get together to share that with people in worship and in praise. And allow the Holy Spirit to flow into us and through us. But a lot of times... When we talk about life in the Spirit, living in the Spirit, a lot of times it is just being consistent with everyday stuff, the regular stuff. You know, to, to, to say prayers every day, to have a quiet time. You know, it's important that we learn how to be quiet before the Lord, just to rest and, and let the Holy Spirit work in us. To get to Mass, you know, as, as often as we can to, you know, give ourselves into lives of service with each other. Um, just to find daily things that we can do to live and be obedient in the Holy Spirit, normal stuff. And then it all begins to build and grow. We have a wonderful um, prayer group in our parish. It was there before I got there, so it's not, you know, I have no credit for it. But after the convocation last, was I guess it's two years ago now, convocation in Westlake two years ago, and there was a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit there. And um, 
the people in the parish were encouraged to start some kind of charismatic prayer group. And, you know, it, 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 they tried a, a number of different things, but um, now we, everybody kind of gets together. They get together once a week. We read the next week's gospel and, and do it Lexio. You understand Lexio? It's not a Bible study, but it's just read the, read the gospel slowly. Maybe you can imagine yourself in the gospel. Repeat words or phrases that are meaningful to you and just allow the Holy Spirit to work. Lexio Divina. Um, and then after that, we pray. It is a powerful, powerful group for intercession. And uh, anything that happens in the parish, that group finds out about it right away because everybody knows these people pray. And um, text messages fly back and forth, pray for this person, pray for that person. People are constantly, and it's, it's a very powerful group. And all they do is just get together, they read the gospel, and they pray for people. Pray for the Pope, pray for our, our priest, pray for all priests, and just allow the Holy Spirit to work through intercession. It's a powerful intercession group. But that sort of thing, ways that we get together. Um, remember, on the Mount of Ascension, the apostles were all messed up. They had no idea what was going on. They kept asking Jesus, is he going to go to Jerusalem and take the throne and make the kingdom set up again? Huh? They were all confused. But after nine days of praying together in one accord, the Holy Spirit fell and powerful things began to happen. There's a tremendous power just to get together with like-minded people and pray and worship and, and meditate upon the Holy Spirit and upon God and allow him to be at work. Because if we're not doing that, guess what we're going to be doing? We're going to be thinking about our problems, aren't we? We're going to be thinking about the mortgage or the car payment or we're going to be thinking about a friend who is ill. We're going to think about our own aches and pains and there are all kinds of things that will distract us away from the presence of God. But when we get together and pray and focus our attention on the Holy Spirit's presence, then suddenly we take our focus off of ourselves, place it on God. And now we're not thinking about our aches and pains. We're not thinking about our mortgage. We're thinking about God as our supply. God as our healer. God who overflows into our lives with goodness. God who has knit us together into his family of the people of God, knowing that we have people to call, call on, knowing that we are part of a community. All of these things began to happen because we get together and we don't complain about our problems. We just pray. And there's no ego or pride. You know, there's just, like we talked about last night, there is just submission to God. And when we listen to God, God always speaks in a still, small voice. Elijah learned that. Right? Remember he was in the cave for three and a half years, three, yeah, three and a half years eating roadkill. And he kept waiting for God to say something. Surely, after three and a half years, God is going to say something. And so finally, there was, there was a, an earthquake, and, and Elijah's listening. Is that it? Is that, he's, saying, he's talking to God? And there was a storm, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and, and there were all these, and wind, and all these noises, and, and Elijah's listening. Are you going to say something? 
Then scripture says there was a still small voice. The Hebrew there literally translates the sound of silence. It wasn't original to Simon and Garfunkel. It was the sound of silence. And God spoke. Mother Teresa used to say, silence is the language God speaks. The sound of silence. And in that silence, we hear God. But the devil, he's the exact opposite. You know, the, the scripture compares the devil to a loud harlot on the corner shouting at, you know, people trying to uh, get people to follow her. You know, the, the devil is like a loud screaming harlot shouting at you. And the Holy Spirit is compared to a chaste spouse. He's the, right? He's the spouse of the Blessed Virgin, right? He is a chaste spouse who in silence ministers love. So when you hear somebody being really loud and, um, you know, trying to demand to do this, demand to do that, shall I say like a politician? No, that would be unkind. But when we hear people shouting at us, that's not where the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is ministering grace, peace, love, and joy. And when the Holy Spirit comes into us, we talked about this last night, there is this tremendous power like the wind that moves us forward. And I talked about that last night, so I won't elaborate on that. I'm going to talk to you about something else. Another image of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is the river. Let's take a look at the river. It's one of my favorite images of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Now, many years ago, I don't think I was even Catholic yet. Many years ago, I was praying with my family. My wife and my daughters were just kind of sitting around the floor praying. And suddenly, everything changed. I wasn't there anymore. I was taken up in the spirit and I was in the throne room of God. And it's hard to describe what I experienced, but I'll try. I, I saw God as, as this massive sphere of pure energy, light, power, God's essence. Scripture calls it God's glory. There is this, this, this tremendous, and you can't, I couldn't see through it, but there was this enormous sphere of the power of God, the glory of God. And then all around him, not in a circle, but like in another big sphere surrounding him, are all the saints and angels. Not countable. And the glory of God is shooting out into all present, into all of the saints, all of the angels, into me. There's this glory is just shooting out into everyone. And then it loops back and it comes back to God. 
in praise and worship and adoration. There is this massive flow of the glory of God coming from God, passing through all those, and really all of the universe. The glory of God passes through all of the universe, for God is all and in all. And it comes back to God in worship and praise and adoration. And then there was, I met an angel. I guess he was an angel. Someone asked me, what did he look like? And I had a hard time describing it, but I, I, I guess he was a beam of light. looked kind of like a beam of light, all right? And he, he's, he said some things to me that, that were secret, but this was God's presence. And the energy, the power that was coming from God that was passing through me and passing into everyone else. It was trembling in power. I mean, it, it was shaking me to my, the very S, the very core of my being. This this power is flowing through, and and it's and I'm trembling in under it, and it's and it's going back to God. There's it's a, there's it's passing through. It's just passing through, and that builds us up. Now, I think this flow that I'm talking about of coming all things coming from God, returning to God. This flow is described in scripture as the river of God this flow from God and I love it the concept of the river of God goes all the way back to Genesis to the Eden story and there were four rivers in Eden remember the four rivers of Eden there were four rivers in Eden and the first one of those rivers is was called the Pishon Pishon is a Hebrew word, comes from the word Pashur, which means prosperity everywhere. But Pishon, the river Pishon, means overflowing with living water. And that really describes life of man before the fall, in the Garden of Eden before the fall. That there was prosperity everywhere, they didn't, have, they didn't lack for anything. They lived in the constant abundance of God. Overflowing abundance everywhere. But then the second river was the Gihon. From the Hebrew word Giha, which means to break. And from Eden, man's relationship with God was broken. He goes from Abundance of every God's provision and abundance everywhere, all around him, to this broken relationship. And he now, and that's you reading the curse, you know, of Adam and Eve, has to work by the sweat of his brow. And he no longer has that blessing of abundance, that it was broken by sin. And then the third river. Is the Hidakel from the verb Hadak. And Hadak means to prick with thorns. So the relationship with God that had been broken at, from by sin in the garden was redeemed by Christ who bore the crown of thorns. And then the fourth River 
is the parat, which means the bitter water has been made sweet. So we are restored into that relationship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden because of the work of Christ. Ezekiel saw this river. Now what he saw, what he saw was a river that began as a trickle on the east side of the temple. The east side of the temple is where Calvary is, where Jesus was crucified. And he saw a trickle of water coming from the east side of the river. East, east side of the temple, and it began to, began to flow, and it began to grow. And it got wider, it got deeper, it got bigger, it got wider, it got deeper, it got bigger, until it hit the ocean. And when the river of God from the east of the temple reached the ocean, it made the salt water fresh. It's the same image that we saw in the four rivers in Eden, that the river of God is that flow that passes from God, flows into us, flows back to him, and it goes, and it goes all the way into the ocean, and it makes the salt water fresh, so that everyone can drink fully. Jesus said, come to me all who are thirsty, and I will, I will make you, I forget the, <laughs> when you get old you forget things, but out of, and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. I think I was confusing a couple of passages there. And he who drinks that water will never thirst again, because it flows out from within us, because the God who created the universe, the God whose glory and essence empowers enact everything in the universe. Everything. It passes, it lives within us, and it rises up from us to be, that we become fountains of living water. And then finally, St. John the Divine describes the river in the book of Revelation, the river of God, flows out from the throne of God. And the river of God is lined with, with the tree of life that brings healing to all of the nations. That is our river. Now, I've swam, 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 I've swam, I think that's right, in a lot of rivers. Some of you have too. I don't know, there aren't that many rivers. Well, there's a Colorado. It's not too far away. Y'all gone swimming in the Colorado River or the Arkansas? And, you know, when you swim in a river, if your destination is upstream, well, it's, you're going to get worn out really fast, and you're never going to get there. It's just going to be frustrating and exhausting. But if you submit to the flow of the river, relax, and enjoy the ride, then it's joyous, it's fun, it's refreshing, it's life-giving, because you are living within the flow. Peter says, in Christ we live and move and have our being. Actually, I think that was Paul. It's in Acts. In him we live 
and move and have our being. Can you see yourself in this river of God? The river that brings fresh, freshness to the salt waste. The river that brings life to the desolate places. The river that brings healing to the nations. That is where we live, in that flow. And wherever God takes us in that flow, we are happy to go. Even if, like St. Stephen, he takes us into a martyrdom. But Jesus stands up and says, well done, come on. Makes it all worthwhile. That is the life in the Spirit. Now the immature believer may want, or often wants, to bend the river to where he wants it to go. It doesn't work that way. So often it, we, we pray with all of these demands on God. We talked about the difference between faith and magic. We have these demands on God, these things we want God to do for us, things how God wants to, to do certain things. But when we can just come to God to worship him as he is, for who he is, desiring nothing more, nothing more than God himself for God's own sake. Not for what we can get from him, but for God's own sake. Thomas Aquinas, you know, I, I talk about him a lot because I, I told some the other day when I was... Uh, to become a Catholic priest, I had to take a few extra courses, and one of them I had to read the entire Summa Theologica. And so I, you know, I got some input from Thomas. But in Thomas Aquinas, as he's towards the end of his, uh, of his academic career, not the end of his life yet, but he has this um, experience with God. And one of the things about this experience with God is he feels like the Holy Spirit is asking him this question. What do you want, Thomas? And Thomas replies, only you. Only you. And after that experience, he refuses to write another word says, everything I've written up till now has been toilet paper. That's what he says. It's all toilet paper. He actually says it's all straw, but that's what they used for toilet paper in that day. It's all toilet paper. Because, you know, is this great intellect, the philosopher, the scientist, the theologian. But when we come face to face with God, it all just goes away. St. Paul writes, my very righteousness is like a filthy rag. You know, we've done all this. We think we've done something for God. But when we come face to face with God, it all just goes away because none of it matters. All that matters is God himself. When we are in that spot, miracles start happening. 
I mean, if we're trying to get miracles, things don't always work out, do they? But if we only want God's presence, miracles naturally happen. It's a great story um, in the Gospels. Jesus has gone. I think he's gone to pray. Anyways, he's, he's out of the way. Um, the disciples, someone brings a man, a boy, a boy who's got an unclean spirit, and they, they ask the disciples, Jesus is not here, but can you handle this? And they go, sure. And they're going after it and after it. They're working at it. They're working at it. Finally, Jesus shows up, and the man says, I've asked your disciples. They've been, they've been working on this kid for you know, an hour. Nothing's happened. You know, can you handle it? And so Jesus, of course, he ministers to the boy. He's set free from the unclean spirit. And he looks at the disciples, and, and the disciples says, how come this doesn't work for us? And Jesus says, this, you know, this kind only comes out with prayer. And I'm sure the disciples thought, well, what do you think we've been doing? <laughs> Because we can go through those motions. We can say all the right words. We can, you know, get two or three to gather together and to agree in Jesus' name and, and, and you know, name it and claim it. And we can do all of these things, do all the right things, and suddenly it's not working. Because we're doing it in our own strength, not in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus knew that prayer was something other than saying all the right words and doing all the right things. Prayer was being in the flow of God. And when we pray in the flow of God, sometimes it's just a word or not a word. I can't tell you how many times God has answered prayers that I haven't even prayed yet. I didn't even gotten around to praying. But Jesus said the Father knows our needs before we ask him. And he's there. And if our hearts are in his flow, it brings healing to the nations. It makes the bitter waters sweet. And God moves. That's the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come, speak into our hearts. Let your word that is sharper than every any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit as bone and marrow, speak into our hearts. Cleanse us by the power of your word. Restore a new fire in each of us. That fire of the Holy Spirit that spreads throughout the community, throughout the world. Be that water, that flowing water that flows from, from the east of the temple. Picking up along the way those who are called by your name and reach out to you. To know your face, to seek your will, to glorify you in their lives. Lord, take us along in the flow of that great river and bring freshness to the salt water. Bring freshness to the bitter water. 
bring life to death, to the dry bones in the, in the valley. Let, the, let them come to life by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. As you move in the hearts of your people, draw us ever closer to you. Consume us in your presence. Consume us in your love. Let there be no, no room left for bitterness, for unforgiveness, for anger, for frustration, for greed, for envy, for ambition. Fill us, Lord, so with the power of your love that all that is left is your love. Wash through us, Lord. Let your love unite your people. Let your love spread your gospel throughout this community and throughout the world. For, Lord, your love is irresistible. It is that for which all persons long. Let it be evident among your people here tonight, Lord, in this parish, in Sacred Heart Parish, may the heart of Jesus be present in each of us so that all will know that we are your disciples, that you are sent by the Father. Thank you, precious Lord, that your love consume. Let your love refresh. Let your love heal. In Jesus' name, amen.